You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. It is great to see those of you who are joining us this morning. Um, my name is David, and I am the worship minister here at Grace Hills, so usually I'm the one up here leading us in some songs. Um, this morning I have the chance to worship with you guys just in a little different way. Um, I just want to give another thank you to Mark and Matt and Tim and Mike for leading us in worship this morning. Um, you know, for Mark in particular, since, you know, since I came on staff, just getting to really train Mark and work with Mark and see him step out in faith this morning is just really awesome. Um, I think he's got a lot of potential. So, um, My pastor growing up would start every one of his sermons with a question. And so my question for you guys this morning is this. What is the most memorable road trip that you've ever been on? I'm sure Steve and Leanne have a number of stories. Um, growing up, my family wasn't much of a road trip family, to be honest with you. Um, we were much more destination than journey people. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Um, but we did do a road trip here and there. And one year, we made the trek out to Yellowstone National Park from Seattle, where I grew up. Um, and so as all 2000s suburban families did, we loaded up our Honda Odyssey minivan and we set out for Yellowstone National Park. And to be honest, I don't remember much after that. Um, this was the scene for my sister and I, much of the trip in the back seat of the car. Um, <laughs> and so we traveled from Seattle to Idaho to Montana and eventually we made it to Yellowstone National Park and we saw the wildlife and the meadows and all that Yellowstone has to offer. And eventually we made it to Old Faithful. Um, for those of you who don't know, Old Faithful is a geyser in the park, and every couple hours it shoots like 4,000 to 8,000 gallons of boiling water that smells awful, by the way. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It shoots this water into the air. And so every few hours, there's a huge crowd of people lined up to see Old Faithful erupt. And so sure enough, our family pops out of the minivan, and keep in mind, I'm like 10 years old this trip, and basically all that's cool is playing baseball and playing Xbox, and I'm standing there with my family, just waiting and waiting and waiting for Old Faithful to erupt. And sure enough, Old Faithful erupts, and it shoots some water in the air, and I'm standing there, and I gotta be honest, I was a little bit underwhelmed. Um, I had seen sprinklers burst in our backyard before, and I didn't think that was much different. <laughs> Um, and I remember kind of thinking, like, man, did we come all this way for that? And sure enough, there was a family standing right in front of us, and it was a family we had actually run into at our hotel a couple times, and they were from England. And right after old, this is like my dad's favorite story, um, right after Old Faithful erupted, the kid in front of us, who was about my age, he tugged on his dad's shoulder, and he goes, Dad, did we come all the way from England for that? <laughs> The reason I tell that story, guys, is because we are going to go on a road trip of our own this morning, and I hope at the end of it, that's not your response. <laughs> like, David, we went all the way through the Bible for that. Um, what we are gonna do in this series is go on a road trip, and it's a road trip through this book. And what we're gonna find is that in the story of Scripture, God has woven symbols. And so each of these three weeks through the series, we are going to be tracking the story of Scripture, looking at a different symbol that keeps popping up. Much like mile markers on a long hike or road signs on a road trip, these symbols keep popping up across the story from Genesis to Exodus to the Gospels to Revelation, tracking the story, and ultimately, they find their fulfillment and their conclusion in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Now, at the outset of this series, I want to make clear, like, not every person, place, or thing in the Bible is a symbol that points to Jesus. Um, What we are not going to do in this series is make up symbols just to add a cool symbol to another graphic. Um, What we are going to do is pay very, very close attention to this story and see the symbols that that God has woven into this book that we might see our king a little more deeply. And so, just to do a super quick teaching moment here, um, what we are doing in this series, as Simon mentioned, is biblical theology at its core. Um, Now, what do I mean by that? Um, Theology, that's theos, logos, God, word, knowledge about God. Um, Most of us are used to that working systematically. You may have heard the term systematic theology, and all that basically means is theology that is summarized. Um, In other words, systematic theology draws circles. So let's say you have a topic like heaven. What systematic theology is going to do is take all the verses about heaven in the Bible, wrap it up, and spit it back out into the super great detailed explanation of what the Bible says about heaven. What biblical theology does is a little bit different. Where systematic theology draws circles, biblical theology is going to draw lines. So from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus and on through the story of Scripture, biblical theology tracks the overarching story. This is a helpful summary from Thomas Schreiner. He says, Biblical theology is about reading the Bible, not as if it's 66 separate books, but a single book with a single plot, God's glory displayed through Jesus Christ. Um, If you are half as geeked out about that concept as I admittedly am, um, I don't have time to do a whole course on this today, but I'd love to just throw some books your way. Um, The first is the Bible. Um, A lot of us are used to just diving in verse by verse and studying the Bible that way. I would challenge you, try reading books at a time or just larger portions at a time. I really think that the overarching story of this book will start to become clear. Um, Secondly, if you're new to church or Christianity or reading the Bible, there's a great book by Vaughn Roberts called God's Big Picture um, that looks at just that, just the whole picture of Scripture. I'd recommend that to you. Um, Or if you're looking for some more in-depth study, there's a great book called The Story Retold. Um, There's also this giant biblical theology I have sitting on my desk by Greg Goswell that came out in March. So um, I can tell John Varela is licking his chops right now. So (laughs) I would recommend those to you. With all that said, um, if that seems super heady and academic, or you're like, dude, I barely even understand half the songs we're singing, um, frankly, I'm really, really glad that you're here this morning. Because all we're going to do this morning is walk through this story. And it's the greatest story ever told. And as we go on this road trip this morning, we are going to see a symbol keep popping up, marking our trail. And this morning, it's the symbol of bread. And so, this morning we're going to be looking at four main breads, if you will. You'll see those on your sermon notes. Um, Number one, the bread of affliction, the bread from heaven, the bread of life, and lastly, the bread of sacrifice. Um, Anytime our family would head out on a road trip, my dad would always pray as we were leaving the garage, so I'd love to pray for our time this morning now. Um, Father, I just thank you for the privilege we have of opening your word and just walking through this story. Um, Lord, may we not forget to remember who you are and all that you've done. Um, Lord, I pray for your traveling mercies this morning as we walk through this story, and I pray that um, the words in your word, your Holy Spirit, would make transformative in our lives. Um, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be um, in my head and in my thinking, in my mouth, in my speaking, and in my heart, and in my understanding. It's in your name we pray. 
Amen. If you have your Bible, and this morning especially, I really hope you do, um, if you open your Bible to the very first page, what you are going to find is a beautifully written table of contents. And just following that, you are going to find the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis is the book of beginnings. Genesis tells us the story of the creation of the world, of the creation of the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And you really don't have to read far to learn that what messes all of it up is sin. If you want to know what is wrong with the world, it's sin. The very first appearance of bread in the Bible is actually found in the consequences of sin. In Genesis 3.19, God tells Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. One of the consequences, the curse here, is not just toiling for bread. Some of you might see in your Bible that word says food. Um, bread was actually so commonplace and essential to the ancient Near Eastern diet that that word for bread, lechem, can actually be translated either bread or just food. And so we see in these opening verses the consequences of sin, and we know that the ultimate consequence for sin is what? It's death, that's right. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's death not only physically, but spiritually and eternally in separation from our God. Now you may be wondering, like, why am I talking about sin and death? I thought the title of the sermon was The Bread of Life. Um, we cannot understand the good news until we understand the bad news. And in the same way, the bread of life makes no sense unless we understand that without it, we are dead. The question that appears now is, how are we going to get to the bread of life? How is God going to solve the sin problem that has separated all of us from him? Right here in the fall, just three chapters into the story, God makes a promise. Um, Genesis 3.15 is often called the Proto-Evangelium. That's Proto-First Evangelium Gospel, the first whisper of how God is going to make a way to solve this problem. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's he? Spoiler alert, that's Jesus. From the very first pages of this story, we have a whisper of how God is going to reverse the curse, how God is going to turn this bread of toil into the bread of life through his son, Jesus Christ. And so with that stage set, the rest of Genesis continues, and much of Genesis is tracking the seed of the woman. And so we track that through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob and Joseph. And by the time we get to the second book of the Bible, that is the book of Exodus, the people of God have really grown into a small nation, and it's the nation that we call the Duggar family. Just kidding. It's the nation we call Israel. And if you read the heading in your Bible above Exodus 1, it says, Israel increases greatly in Egypt. That poses a huge problem for the ruler of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And so he has to turn to desperate measures to try and control these people. If you know the story of Exodus or you've watched the movie Prince of Egypt, you probably know what happens next. Um, God calls a man named Moses to go before Pharaoh and essentially say four words, right? Let my people go. And Pharaoh says yes, and they're on their way. No. Pharaoh says no, 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 no. And so God 
begins to wage war on every lowercase g god that Egypt has been worshiping. And so he sends these plagues of flies and locusts, and eventually, God sends one last decisive plague on Egypt. And it's the event we call Passover, and it's now when we arrive at our first major bread this morning, that's the bread of affliction. God sends one last plague on Egypt in the event of Passover, And in Passover, God sends an angel to come through the land and strike down the firstborn of every household. But God provides a way for his people to be spared, right? You remember, he commands the people of Israel essentially to do two things. Number one, they are to take a lamb, and they are to sacrifice the lamb and paint the blood on their doorposts. And when the angel comes through, the angel will see the blood, and they will pass over their home. That's where we get the name Passover from. Um, Secondly... The people of Israel are to eat unleavened bread with the lamb that they cook and with bitter herbs, and they have this meal together. Um, That unleavened bread is also referred to as the bread of affliction, referring to the affliction that Israel experienced in Egypt. Um, Just one main question I want to answer here is like, why unleavened bread? What the unleavened bread signifies is really one thing, it's haste. Um, If you've ever made bread before, and my guess is following the pandemic, a lot more of you have at least tried, um, bread requires leaven. Leaven is what makes bread rise. Unleavened bread, obviously, is unleavened. Um, In Hebrew, it's matzah. Um, Unleavened bread is quick. And so what it signifies here is haste. The time for the saving and redeeming of God's people from Egypt is now. Israel was itching to get out of Egypt, but my guess is the unleavened bread made these people a little bit uneasy. Um, You know how long Israel was in Egypt? It's actually a bit of a debated question, but the Bible tells us Israel was in Egypt for 430 years. Just for reference, do you know how long the United States has been a country? 247 years. Israel was in Egypt for 430 years, and suddenly God says, we don't even have time for the bread to rise. (laughs) The time getting you out is now. The time for redemption is now. God's timing rarely makes sense to our timelines. Can I get an amen on that? I have a friend who likes to remind me God sometimes uses the crock pot, and God sometimes uses the microwave. That's for free. Take that for what you will. Um, But God is never early, and God is never late. There's things God knows I've been praying for and waiting for for years that haven't happened yet. But as we sing in that song, I will wait for you, I will wait for you. Why? Because we know God is sovereign and we know that his timing is trustworthy. Whether he says never or whether he says now, like with the unleavened bread of affliction in Passover, he is good. One last thing to note here on the bread of affliction God finishes giving Moses these instructions for Passover with the lamb and the herbs and the bread. And in Exodus 12, he continues saying, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. This is verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Do you see what's going on there? God is planning the celebration of the deliverance that he has not yet brought. It's like he's planning the Super Bowl parade in the first quarter of the game. 
And what God does for us is a very similar thing. He gives us an implicit promise of his victory. Another song we sing, this is what happens when you let the worship guy preach, I guess. Um, I'm fighting a battle you've already won. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. That is the same kind of promise that God is giving here with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He calls us to celebrate and worship him for future victory. Like, make no mistake, guys, the war is not over. Um, Gary Wong did a really good job yesterday at the men's breakfast talking about just the reality that um, we are in a war right now. But church, when you look outside and it seems like the fall is more real than ever, and it feels like Satan is winning, take heart. Our God has already won. God implicitly promises victory with the bread of affliction, and as the story continues, that's exactly what he brings about. He leads his people out following the Passover. He parts the Red Sea. He defeats the armies of Egypt. And the people of Israel are led out into the wilderness, and soon enough, in Exodus 16:2, we read, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's easy to laugh at that, right? Like, guys, how fabricated are the good old days? The way they remember Egypt is not by slavery and brutality and death, but by bread and the meat pots. How many of us are stuck longing for the good old days that, can we all just be honest, weren't all that good? There's a Scottish theologian, Alexander McLaren, who wrote a commentary on this passage, and he said this, Our present miseries and our past blessings are the themes on which unbelief harps. Let him that is without similar sin cast the first stone at these grumbling Israelites. How quick is Israel, and let's not kid ourselves, us in turn, how quick are we to forget the God who saves us, will he not also sustain us? God answers that question in Exodus 16:4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Why they didn't just translate that frosted flakes, you be the judge. Um, When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. We've arrived at our second bread, and that's the bread from heaven. God saves his people with the bread of affliction, and now he sustains his people with the bread from heaven, the manna, the frosted flakes. A couple things here. Um, my first question when reading this story was like, why manna? As one author put it, why would the creator of the world and everything in it, including every type of fruit and vegetable and meat, display his power to sustain Israel with a single flaky grain? Like, in my words, God, why not make it rain a prime ribeye from heaven or Lori Johnson cinnamon rolls? (laughs) 
I think the answer is a lot of times, guys, God is a lot more concerned with getting us to focus on him as the provider rather than on the provision. Deuteronomy 8.3 actually looks back on this very story. It says, he, that's God, humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Church, when you find yourself in a spot where you are looking for God to provide, financially, a job, a car, a house, a spouse, whatever that might be, are you looking at the provision or are you looking to him as the provider? Do you seek God's face before you seek his hand? Are you trusting his steadfastness or are you trusting in his stuff? Because you see, God doesn't just give Israel bread. Same chapter, this is Exodus 16.10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. God doesn't just give them bread. He gives them himself. Last quick note on the bread from heaven. Um, if you remember, Israel is commanded to collect the manna six days out of the week. And on the seventh day, manna doesn't fall, right? Right here in this passage with the bread of heaven, outside of the seven days of creation, this is the first time we see that word Sabbath used in the Bible. God the provider in his abundant grace not only gives Israel salvation, marked by the bread of affliction, he gives them sustenance, marked by the bread from heaven, and more than that, he gives them his presence and he invites them into his rest. Salvation, sustenance, presence, rest, all of those I hope you're starting to see are pointing to one thing, one thing to come. And that's where we arrive at our third bread this morning, the bread of life. What fills the majority of the rest of the Old Testament are the writings of the prophets. And what the prophets are doing is really mourning the state of God's chosen people. They are mourning the sinful, constantly grumbling state of these people. And all of the prophets are waiting for that child promised back in Genesis 3. They are waiting for the one to bring back the bread. They are waiting for that bread of life to come so they can find their salvation. The prophet Micah was one of those prophets. In Micah 5.2, he writes, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days." Do you catch that? See what's going on there? Like Micah says, this promised child, the one that all of Israel is waiting for to bring back the bread, to be the bread of life, to reverse the curse, will come from where? From Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? Beit means house. Lechem, do you remember? Bread. This promised child, the one who will come to be the bread of life, will come from the house of bread. Like guys, Bethlehem is not just the Oh, little town of Bethlehem, where the humble Messiah is, and the humble town where the humble Messiah comes from. Bethlehem is at the very same time a banner proudly proclaiming the identity of this child to be the bread of life before he even speaks a word. And so, as the New Testament opens, Jesus begins his public ministry around the age of 30, and he immediately begins doing three things. He begins teaching. We just finished our sermon series, Jesus Teaches On. Um, Jesus begins performing miracles, and Jesus begins eating. 
Just telling it like it is. Um, One author wrote this. He said, if you read through Luke's gospel, you'll come to find Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Jesus ate, taught, he performed miracles, and really all three of these come to a head in John 6, which is where we arrive for our third point this morning, the bread of life. If you turn your Bibles to John 6, really to set the stage here, verse 4 says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That's a really important detail. Um, We just talked about Passover with the bread of affliction and Moses and um, the deliverance out of Egypt. All of that is in the very front of these people's minds. Now, at the very same time, there existed a really strong expectation that the Messiah, the promised child, would be a sort of second Moses, who would literally bring back the bread from heaven. Um, my, one of my favorite professors at Biola taught on this passage, and he titled his lecture, Show Me the Manna. That's pretty much exactly what's going on in the minds of these people, and Jesus does just that. If you remember the story, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish, with 12 baskets full left over. And following this miracle, Jesus has kind of a teaching dialogue with the crowd. This is picking up in John 6, verse 31. The crowd says, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus makes two corrections here. Number one, they've got the wrong guy. They say, thank Moses for bringing this bread. And God, and Jesus says, no, that was my father. And right there you have a claim of divinity for the son of God. Number two, they've not only got the wrong guy, they've got the wrong bread. Jesus says, the bread of God that you are looking for and waiting for, it's not the bread of affliction, it's not the bread from heaven, it's not the manna, it's not even the bread that he provided yesterday. Spoiler alert, it's he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It's himself. You know, growing up, I heard the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 all the time. And the landing point, the response was always like, wow, that's a lot of bread. Like, wow, that's a lot of people that Jesus fed. You know, the whole point of this miracle is that it's not about that bread at all. All of it is pointing to the one who in verse 35 says to the crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What's Jesus saying here? He's essentially saying you are what you eat. To eat the bread of life means we can find eternal life in him as dead, broken, lost sinners. The invitation Jesus offers us is one of new life. Just like we physically cannot survive without food, we spiritually cannot survive apart from the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Max Licato made the comment, an unopened loaf of bread does a person no good. To eat the bread of life means to have an ongoing, abiding, life-giving relationship with Jesus. That's what it means to have eternal life in Christ. That is who Jesus is, and that is what Jesus gives. Um, Quick side note, church, if you 
call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a partaker in the bread of life, you are not merely called to partake of the bread of life. You are called to give and share the bread of life. You know what one of the best ways to do that is? It's meals. Literally break bread together, sit around a table together. Um, one of the best, most practical books I've ever read is called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. He says this, he says, I can think of no more effective environment for inviting evangelism than sharing a meal around your table. When you combine a passion for Jesus with shared meals, you create potent gospel opportunities. By the way, if you have a passion for cooking and a passion for Jesus, which like 80% of this church does, <laughs> look out. Jesus continues in verse 48. He says again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. I always imagine him like literally pointing to himself here. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And that very question takes us to our last bread this morning. We've talked about the bread of affliction. We've talked about the bread from heaven, the man in the wilderness. We've talked about the bread of life, who Jesus claims to be. And lastly, we come to the bread of sacrifice. At the end of Luke's gospel, near the close of Jesus' ministry, it's once again time for the Passover feast. And the eating, drinking Messiah is found in a very familiar place, around a table with his friends. By all accounts, it appears to be a very normal Passover meal. All the fixings are on the table. The rituals are in place. That first Passover, the deliverance from Egypt, is on the front of everyone's mind. At a typical Passover meal, um, a prayer would be read, and then the youngest son would ask aloud, Manishtana, why is this night different from all other nights? And year after year after year after year, they'd recount the story of Israel's salvation and redemption from the land of Egypt. But at this point, in Luke 22, this familiar meal takes a very unexpected turn. The entire story so far, all of human history to this point in Luke 22 has been pointing to this question, why is this night different from all other nights? Jesus answers this question himself. In verse 19, it says, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body. Jesus goes off script. And my guess is, frankly, that wouldn't have, dis have surprised the disciples too much. Jesus had just said in John 6, he is the bread of life. They've heard this before. But tonight, Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I can just imagine the disciples sitting there going like, what? By the way, the breaking and the passing of bread was normally done in silence. Jesus breaks the silence, he breaks the bread, and he places himself in the center of the story. 
Oddly enough, and I don't have time to go into the lamb element of this meal, Simon will get to that in a few weeks, but suffice it to say, I get this from Tim Keller. It appears by all accounts that the Passover lamb is not plated on the table. The Passover lamb is seated at the table. As the rest of the story goes, Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested, he's put on trial. He is beaten, flogged, whipped, spit on, crowned with thorns, and nailed to a cross to die. The bread of life breathes his last. He does exactly as he said he he would do. The bread of life is broken for you and for me. You see, Jesus, the bread from heaven, becomes the bread of affliction, broken for you and for me that through being the bread of sacrifice, we can find the bread of life. This moment right here is what all of it has been pointing to. You remember the first verse we read this morning, Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Jesus comes and reverses that curse. Jesus, the bread of life, is broken for you and for me so that we might enter into his presence and into his rest. That by his sweat, by his stripes, by his toil, by his crucifixion, by his death, we can find healing and forgiveness and new life. But at this point in the story, we have a problem, don't we? The bread of life is dead. A few days after Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial, the disciples are traveling and they're traveling to a village called Emmaus. And as they're walking, a man comes up to them and he asks them, what are you guys talking about? And they look at him like, haven't you heard the news? It says in verse 17, and they stood still looking sad. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Oh, we had hoped. And the man spoke to them. He said, oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, with who? With Moses, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning, spoiler alert, himself. Frankly, I think he takes them on a road trip not too dissimilar from the one we've gone on this morning. It says, so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. It says, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed. No pun intended. (laughs) Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the bread of life, that you are the king who is alive, who offers us new life. And Father, I pray as we close the story this morning, Lord, would you help us remember that um, we too find ourselves in this story. And this morning we find ourselves um, at your table with an invitation to come to you and find salvation and sustenance, your presence and your rest. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that while we were dead in our sins and transgressions, you made a way. You laid your life down. Your body was broken for us that we might find forgiveness in your name 
and new life in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, Church, the question now is, so what? Jesus, the bread of life, was broken for us, but what does that mean? What does that mean for you that Jesus is the bread of life? And the reality is I can't answer that question for you, but I can extend an invitation to you, and that's the invitation to the communion table this morning. The table of communion is really a reflection of everything we've talked about this morning. We have the bread symbolizing the bread of life that was broken for you and for me. And we have the cup. We have the cup of Christ's blood that was shed for us. Who is communion for? Communion is for those of you who would call yourselves partakers in the bread of life, for those of you who believe in the name of Jesus Christ for your salvation. If that's you, this table is for you to eat and drink and remember. Um, If you have questions about what a relationship with Jesus looks like, there is nothing more we want to do this morning than talk with you. Um, You can talk with me, with Mark, with Simon, with anyone here, and they would love to tell you what a relationship with Jesus looks like. This week's communion is reflection, and I just encourage you to reflect on, is Jesus your bread of life? Wherever you're at in your relationship with God, what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? Are you relying on him to provide, to give you sustenance, and to give you that rest? And so as we somberly remember his sacrifice together this morning, we also rejoice in the fact that he has won, that he is risen, and that in the bread of life we find our life, both now and forevermore. Let us come to the table.